right, if you all could please bow with me before I begin. Creator, we come before you humbly and thank you for the opportunity to be in community with one another. We are so fortunate to share in life together. And I ask that your spirit would be filled in this place, that you would guide the words of this sermon and the hearts and minds of each and every person participating in this service and bearing witness. Amen. All right. So I'm not sure if you all have noticed, we've made some changes to our website. Um, and there are some new words on the home page. I encourage you to check it out. Um, Virginia and Tim have been working really hard. Um, our like intro text reads, reimagining belief together, sharing food, asking questions, listening deeply, singing proudly, reading curiously, LGBTQIA plus loving, anti-racism preaching, planet honoring, all gender welcoming, remembering ourselves, having fun, noticing one another, trying to reflect divine things. Church remaking the world. Damn. <laughs> Makes me super excited to be a part of this community. But like, how are we gonna do that? I think partially <laughs> through the, the things listed in that big chunk. Um, but after listening to Tim's sermon on how tragedy forces us to change, and then Pastor Jamie's sermon at Lighthouse at, on Nehemiah and manifesting a vision for our lives in the world, I realized that this is a live question. How do we remake the world? How do we create change in the direction that we desire, which is towards a world just a tad bit more loving and a smidgen more caring? And I say in a direction that we desire because the fact of the matter is our very state of being is constant change. The fabric of the universe is change. And this operates at varying levels and degrees, whether we recognize it or not. And so the question is at the level of intentionality and attention. How do we create change in, in the direction that we desire towards a world just a tad bit more loving, a smidgen more caring? So last weekend at the sewing team meeting, Dorian said, who is a member of this congregation, if you don't know Dorian, um, I don't think she's here today. She's sick. She's sick today, but hopefully you will meet her. Um, she said that a part of being root and branchers is that we are followers of Christ's example, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I hope she still stands by that statement. Um, often when people think of Jesus and change, they point to his revolutionary heaven-raising tendencies. You see what I did there? Yeah, I love that. Okay. <laughs> um, this includes the stories of when Jesus would feed the 5,000, 5, um, him casting out the money changers in the temple of Jerusalem, or even throwing the Pharisees some shade every now and then, you know, the good one too. Um, and all these stories are great, but I think they overshadow some of the quieter moments of Jesus's ministry. So in the Gospel of Mark, which is the first gospel narrative that we have, written between 66 and 70 AD, Jesus is moving from Gentile to Jew territory 
and back again um, to perform all of these miracles. And aside from the miracles, Jesus does something quite tame. It reads in Mark 1.35, Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went looking for him, and when they found him, they exclaimed, Everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, Let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. I like to think that Jesus had quite an attitude, you know. Um, (laughs) That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out the demons. So in this passage, we see that Jesus turned inward for a time. He went early in the morning and he prayed. And then he went out to do his ministry. And this just doesn't happen in like the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, but nine times throughout the entire book. And in some instances, it sounds more like Jesus was an introvert. You know, he didn't want to be bothered with people, or rather that he wasn't necessarily energized by the interactions of his ministry. Um, And that might be true, but it can equally be true that Jesus was just recharged mentally and spiritually and physically by connecting with God, by connecting with the divine. Um, And I've had my own experience of this, not to the level of Jesus, um, but I, before I started divinity school, I did a 10-day silent meditation retreat. And some of you here have heard the story earlier this week. Um, but this meditation retreat was in Rockford, Illinois, so about two hours away from here. Um, and I decided to do it for a number of reasons. First and foremost, it was free or donation-based, which is good for any broke grad student. Um, And I like a good challenge. And finally, and most importantly, I wanted to take a personal inventory before starting divinity school. So to say the least, um, my time at Dhamma Picasso was difficult and beautiful all at once. Beautiful because there were like bunny rabbits and frogs and all kinds of nature around. um, And difficult, I will get into that. So it all came to a head on days five and six. You see, Goenka, the founder of Vipassana meditation, had given a Dharma talk the night before about how all of life is suffering. And in my afternoon sit on the sixth day, this truth started to hit me really, really hard. And I was scanning my body and like meditation and all I could find was pain everywhere, pain in my groin, stiffness in my back, my legs were falling asleep, my heart actually hurt like physically and emotionally. It was a lot. And my mind kept jumping to all of the people that I couldn't stand. The rude old woman who kept cutting in line throughout the week for food, Um, my mediocre ex-boyfriend, And just general fear about my future in the divinity school was all just like washing over me. And I became increasingly uncomfortable in my seat and I wanted to just crawl out of my skin. And I started to cry. Oddly enough, after all of this like negativity and emotion in my body, my mind turned to Jesus. And remembering Jesus's life began to comfort me and my breath settled in. 
And for the rest of the sit, I started praising God in my heart, and I was worked up into such a frenzy that I didn't feel any pain in my body anymore, and my entire being just began to melt, and I felt one with the universe, like just total peace, which is a very rare experience. <laughs> um, so this is what I like to call the ecstatic experience of spiritual practice. I'm not sure if you all have ever, ever experienced it, but it's a lot. Um, and I often find myself chasing after it. Maybe you've had it when you're like hiking in the mountains and you just see something so beautiful and you, like you're overtaken by awe and it just takes you to that emotional place. So I think a lot of our like spiritual new age Gwyneth Paltrow culture is built around chasing these moments of insight. You know, seeing heaven, spiritual ecstasy. There are ayahuasca trips that you can take. There are shrooms you can drop. <laughs> I don't even know if that's the right terminology for that. <laughs> Clearly I haven't taken any shrooms, right? Um, but there are like pilgrimages of all sorts that you can do to get to that moment fairly quickly. And really, they are all totally fine in of themselves, no judgment, you know. But I think we are missing something. If we believe that all we have to gain from spiritual practices is the ecstatic experience or the clout that comes from saying that we have that experience or that practice. So I think the most valuable thing that I learned through that, at, that week, that week and a half, was that habituation and practice, are, it's full of torment and joy, um, but it's also the only way that self-transformation can happen. And that self-transformation is not just for me unto myself, um, but it's towards the goal of social change for the better. And the better is simply respectful and loving interactions with all people, and I say simply, but that's like very difficult. <laughs> Um, working towards sustainability, actually looking the person in the eye who asks me for money on the street, even if I don't have the cash to give them. All of these things. Change comes about in the ritual of meditation, of prayer, of hiking in nature. Change comes about in the habituation of it all. So you may be asking yourself, but really, how do, how do we get there? How, how does this happen, Anissa? You're saying all of these things. How do we get from sitting in meditation every morning to heaven raising social change? First, our training connects us with a power greater than our own. Whether you call that God or not is not the point. Um, but I believe it's tapping into an unlimited power source or energy. And that gives us the strength and the courage and the awareness to live out our values. Second, and I think almost equally as important, is that there is a lot of gunk and ideals we inherit from this capitalist society that is embedded in our very way of being. And that needs to be undone. Spiritual practices help us reconcile those things in ourselves. The work of the spiritual practice is to decolonize the mind, which means to let go of the lie of separation so that you can do the work not in service to the other, right, because that perpetuates this lie, 
but rather with and for the other. We are in community working together. To be this community, we must each be willing to spend time with those living on the margins of society, to listen to their stories, hear their frustrations, and open ourselves to their anger, despair, and pain. And this needs to be consistent so that we form relationships. We must also be willing to use the power we have by becoming advocates for those we are in community with and those on our hearts. And finally, we have to risk giving up our own privilege so that we may all live in a world of increasing justice and love and care. So for me, this looks like daily mindfulness, paying attention to all of the ways I embody deeply ingrained classism, not because I come from a wealthy family, but because I grew up in private schools and just generally in this world where we're constantly bombarded with how important wealth and achievement is. So letting go of the fear is a part of it, the fear that I have of specifically bringing folks into this community and that they may not be welcomed because of their education or socioeconomic attainment, fear that they may not have the cultural capital necessary to be embraced here. I have to work on letting all of those things go and like really interrogating why and letting God, to be honest, like work on me. So an example of this is um, this past Tuesday, I was at an organization called the Sweetwater Foundation on the south side of Chicago. And they're working on urban ecology through farming and community art and housing programs. And I was there to learn about a new project they have, which is honestly, it's so awesome. There's a church that's next door and they're restoring it and they're gonna turn it into the studio art space. But I was there to learn about this project and I was given a tour by one of the community farmers and docents. So as the tour is going along, we started to chat about spirituality and how he wasn't a typical Christian um, and how he believed in numerology and astrology. And I was like, yo, me too. I like, I function with being a Pisces. That's like really important to my identity. Um, so anyway, we were talking about all of this and he explained that he didn't have a church community. Um, and I hesitated, but I invited him to Root and Branch. Now, meditation and mindfulness is teaching me how to explore and examine these hesitations, um, and specifically my weariness to inviting him here, where that comes from, what was my judgment, how can I work past it, how might God want me to be in community with this person, that is the work of spiritual practice for social change. Now, I'm not sure if he will come to Root and Branch or not. I hope he does eventually. Um, but I know that I'll continue to go to the Sweetwater Foundation and get in where I fit in in that community um, because it's evident that they are doing the with and for work that I was talking about earlier. And we at Root and Branch have the same opportunity and we are taking these steps as well. Um, through the sewing team, through our partnership with Lighthouse Foundation. Um, so, and you're gonna hear more about these things kind of in our all together meeting, so I encourage you to stay after. Um, but in closing, I would just like to say that everyone is called to a sacred rhythm 
And that sacred rhythm is defined by the individual, God or the divine, or however you construe it. And it is activated in community. And this means that there are daily spiritual practices where we meditate or pray, and then we go out into the world and we make the world less harmful and more livable. It also means that we may have seasons of activism and justice work and seasons of retreat, fasting, prayer, and contemplation. I'm not saying there is a right or a wrong way to do this. Rather, the wrong thing is just to not do it at all. So the task of the person in Christian community is to understand and engage in both processes, not perfectly and not without struggle. I struggle. My meditation practice is all over the place, um, but honestly and intentionally. So I hope that as members of this community, that as much as we engage with coming to church on Sunday and doing the fun outings and the ecology and sewing team projects, um, that we also think of our relationship to spiritual practice and how it might positively inform the heaven-raising work we are trying to activate in Chicago.